Today I want to read to you from the book of Revelation and I'm going to be reading from the book of Revelation chapter 2 and beginning at verse 8 through to verse 11. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not, because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will show, throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for ten days. But if you remain faithful even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. That's God's word for us today. Well, the message to the church in Smyrna is, like the others, uh, is specifically tailored to and shows a deep understanding of the cultural context of the city and the church within it. The city was renowned for its beauty. It was called the, the Flower of Asia. And in terms of commerce and religion, as well as the cult of emperor worship, it was the great rival of Ephesus. It was known for its loyalty to the ideals, ethos and values of Rome and was rewarded for that loyalty. Very proud city, obsessed with being first. Even their coins were stamped with the words, first city of Asia in size and beauty. Note therefore that Jesus introduces himself as the first and the last. It's a phrase used about God in Isaiah 41, verse 4, 43, verse 10 and 44, verse 6. Jesus is reminding them that he is the first and the last. That the whole of history is framed not by the decisions and the will of Caesar or any other power for that matter. It's framed by him. He is the first and the last and as such he is in sovereign control over all that was, all that is and all that shall be. As Daryl Johnson puts it, whatever happens in our history and whatever else happens in my history, Jesus is there as the first word and Jesus will be there as the last word and Jesus is here in the middle with the word that gives life. It's not surprising then that Jesus tells them that he knows their tribulation. As the Lord of history, Jesus knows the reality of their situation, but not just in an abstract sort of way, but in himself. Remember that when he challenged Saul on the road to Damascus, he said to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus also describes himself as the one who died and came to life. That was a description that would resonate with the Smyrnaeans. The city had experienced its own kind of resurrection. It was destroyed in 580 BC and it lay in ruins for 300 years, being rebuilt in 290 BC, becoming uh, in its own eyes anyway, the first city of Asia. However, Jesus is not just the one who died and came to life. In the first vision of Revelation, he comes to them as the one who now holds the keys of death and Hades. He is the risen one who rules over death. And so he's reminding them that real resurrection life is in him alone. 
In Ezekiel 37, the prophet sees a valley filled with bones and is asked by God, can these bones live? The answer, of course, is that God can make them live and it's in Christ the Lord that we find our life, uh, even in the midst of our present struggles and all the anxiety about the future that we are living through today. It's in Christ the Lord that we find our life in and through and on the other side of our present troubles. In his book, Second Choice, Embracing Life As It Is, Viv Thomas describes a belief that's quite common in the church in the West today, but it's so unrealistic that he calls it a fantasy. It is the fantasy that if we have a close relationship with God, he will give us our first choice life. He writes, the idea behind this fantasy is simple. It's the notion that spiritual people always get it right. They listen to God and God always delivers them and to them the things that they think they need. Real spiritual people uh, are like high-class machinery, low maintenance and almost problem-free. If they do have problems, they know how to solve them quickly. And Thomas then uses the story of Daniel, who at best lived a, a second choice life, and yet one that was not only personally fulfilling, but God glorifying. He uses Daniel's life to show that this kind of thinking is not just unrealistic, it's unbiblical. And yet it is very common. Uh, and, and not only that, it's quite, it's an old fashioned thing. It's not a new thing. It's, it's been around for a very, very long time. This idea that God rewards the righteous with a life of first choices is nothing new. Certainly, uh, the church in Smyrna was doing in Smyrna was doing everything right. Uh, unlike the Ephesians, they had not lost their first love. Unlike the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira, they were not compromising with immorality and idolatry that was around them. Uh, unlike the Laodiceans, they were not lukewarm. They were doing everything right. They were godly. And yet, despite that, they were suffering. They were living a life of second choices and of circumstances not chosen, but imposed upon them. Jesus speaks of their poverty, and it's likely that many of them were suffering economically because of their refusal to participate in the imperial cult and how that would affect their standing in the trade guilds. And on top of that, the Jewish opponents uh, seem to be um, getting them in trouble with uh, the authorities as well. Jesus says he knows their tribulation and he uses the word flipsis. It refers to a crushing pressure. In the New Testament, it's never used of the normal frustrations of life, uh, but always in connection with the conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. In other words, there is a spiritual element to this pressure that they are feeling. Philipsis is the contact point where the justice of God collides with the injustice of mankind. Jesus knows what they have been going through and what their faithfulness has cost them, and so he commends them for it. He applauds them for their faithfulness despite that crushing pressure. And so they might well have expected Jesus then to tell them that he'd come to lift that pressure off them as a reward for their faithfulness. But in fact, 
he tells them the very opposite. Jesus knows what they have gone through and he knows what is still to come. He tells them that some of them are about to be thrown in prison uh, and implies that some of them will be killed. That for 10 days they'll have tribulation. Now we need to keep in mind that all numbers in Revelation are symbolic and so the number 10 is not intended to be taken literally but probably means that they experience tribulation until the tribulation has, has completed its purpose. This is real out of the frying pan into the fire stuff. And they might reasonably have been asking, what's the deal? Tribulation was definitely not the reward they might have expected for their faithfulness. But in the ancient world, there was an assumption that God blessed the righteous and punished the wicked. You see this kind of thinking playing out in the Old Testament in the lives of the patriarchs, in Joseph's story, in the story of Daniel and his companions. The message seems to be that if God is with you, if you're doing all the right things, if you're being spiritual, if you're godly, then you will prosper. Job's so-called comforters assumed that all that had befallen him was a result of the sin in his life, sin that he had not confessed, because they believed that God prospers the righteous and punishes the wicked. In John 9, Jesus came across a man born blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So in these ancient cultures, there is a background idea that health, wealth and prosperity mean you're righteous, that poverty, illness or calamity means that you are a sinner. And that thinking is very much in vogue in the church in the West today. Many professing Christians today reject this so-called prosperity gospel in principle, but they adhere to it in practice. When bad things happen to good people, we can't help but think that something is not right with this picture. And yet the idea that if you are doing the right things, if you're being a faithful disciple, you'll be blessed materially, that you'll not experience hardship and suffering and calamity, uh, kind of ignores everything that Jesus said in the Gospels about being a disciple. He was clear about the suffering and hardship it would entail. As C.H. Spurgeon often said, the cross must be carried before the crown can be worn. Notice carefully, however, that Jesus says that their accusers are of the synagogue of Satan, which means false accuser. That it's the devil who's going to throw them into prison. One of the main truths that Revelation is trying to teach us is that things are not merely as they appear and that there is more to reality than meets our unaided senses. As Revelation unfolds, especially chapters 12 to 14, it becomes increasingly clear that we are involved in a cosmic battle between the dragon and the lamb. It also makes it clear that the lamb has triumphed over the devil at the cross and in the empty tomb, and so the devil can no longer hurt Jesus. Therefore, as one writer puts it, the enemy goes after that which is dearest to Jesus, namely his church. Evil is not only a real force in the world, it is a personal force. Behind the human forces that were persecuting the church in Smyrna was the power of evil personified in the devil, 
the great dragon, who seeks to destroy the church of Jesus and his kingdom that has broken into the world. The Smyrnian church needed to wake up to the spiritual realities that surrounded them. And so do we. I'm sure that many of us will know well the famous words of Paul in Ephesians 6, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Well, the problem is that whilst we may agree with those words in principle, in practice, we fail to live each day in the light of the truth of those words. We must wake up to the fact that there is a spiritual battle raging all around us, a battle for the affections of your heart and mine. The enemy is real and personal, and if you're an apprentice to Jesus, well, welcome to the war. If you want to stand firm, get your armour on, for it's the only way that you will stand. The light of Jesus Christ was shining brightly in the lives of the believers in Smyrna. It's the very fact that they were being faithful, that the response of the darkness was to try and extinguish that light through crushing pressure. Every night when I go to bed, before I turn the light out, I listen to the Lectio 365 evening devotion. And it has an oft-repeated uh, refrain from John 1 verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. But that doesn't mean it, the darkness doesn't try. Now it's true that sometimes we experience the crushing pressure because we make careless or ungodly choices in life. And sometimes, in fact, we experience that crushing pressure because uh, of the choices that other people have made in life that impact us. But sometimes it is precisely because we are making good and godly choices that we feel that pressure. As Paul wrote to Timothy, all who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. And notice he says will be, not might be. A life of faithful obedience will always draw a response from the dragon. And if we want to be faithful to Jesus, we should be less concerned about that flipsis, that pressure, than we are about a life of ease and comfort, a life filled with first choices. All things considered, the reason the devil comes against us is if Christ is being made manifest in us and through us. Otherwise, he'll just leave you alone. Like the believers in Smyrna, we must understand that as the first and the last, Jesus is Lord of history and so he is ultimately in control and the darkness can do what the darkness does. The devil can rage and put on all kinds of pressure but the darkness cannot extinguish the light. 
Firstly, we can see that although the devil is given the power to throw some of them into jail, that power is limited. The power of evil is real and it is, it is fierce in the world, but it's power on a leash. The tribulation has a time limit. As in the story of Job, the devil can go so far, but no further. No wonder Jesus tells them not to be afraid. The devil is powerful. Evil is evil, but no, no, no match for Jesus. Secondly, the devil attacked them in the hope that they would abandon Christ, for that's always his purpose. But Jesus also has a purpose, a purpose to test their faith. The word test means to prove or improve. And so, as Beale writes, Jesus employs the devil's efforts for the purpose of strengthening his people through these tests. The devil's purpose is that they'll abandon the faith. Jesus' purpose is to improve their faith. As the devil's plans at the cross were used to bring God's salvation to the world, so the suffering of the Smyrnians will result in blessing and ultimate deliverance for them. If they remain faithful through this period of testing, they will be given the crown of life and will be victorious over the second death, the final judgment. So how did the church in Smyrna fare? Well, unlike Ephesus, it still exists today, although it has changed its name. The city is now called Izmir, the second largest city in modern day Turkey. But Izmir is also a vibrant centre of worship and education in the Eastern Orthodox tradition of the Church of Jesus Christ. And so the Gospel of Jesus Christ has been and is still being told and lived there today. For two, over 2,000 years, the Church there has rarely had any respite from the pressures against it as it has stood faithful to Christ in the cosmic battle all around them. But it has remained faithful. The pressures that we face today may not be as obvious as they were for the Christians in Smyrna. They faced fierce opposition that threw them in jail, that, that martyred some of them. It restricted their ability to earn a living. For us, the pressure is perhaps less direct. Less direct persecution, but persecution nonetheless. But certainly, much more, we face the enticement daily to accommodate the ideas, principles and practices of the world. To worship Jesus alongside worshipping mammon and all the other idols of the age the consequences of which are spelled out in the messages to the other churches in this chapter and the next. To accommodate the, the ideas and principles and practices of the world is to reject those of Jesus. The two things are incompatible. And so whatever the pressure is, we need to understand who is behind it and what his purpose is to cause us to abandon or drift away from our allegiance to Jesus Christ as our King. 
if we look to Jesus in the midst of our trials, we can be confident that he will work all things, even this present darkness, for our ultimate good. He's the first and the last, the one who died and who is alive again. And so we have no need to be afraid. Let us live today in the light of that truth. May God bless you in the week ahead.